So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the gospel of Luke, reading from the third chapter, verses 15 through 20. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to truly bring it alive for us. But dear Heavenly Father, as we sort of wrap up this discussion of John the Baptist, we know it's not over. He'll reappear later in the gospel. But in this introduction of not only his place in history and redemptive history, but also who he was and the kind of person that he was, that, that we might pull him out as an example, that we might understand that this is a godly man that Jesus said was the greatest man born of woman, And that we should be able to look at him and to find behavioral patterns that are good for Christians to follow. Pray that you will give me clarity of words and boldness to speak those words effectively. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I think that most of us, many of us, if not most of us, Um, look around ourselves at the world in which we live right now, the culture in which we live, and we're disturbed because we see things that are just, well, frankly, quite disturbing. We see gross immorality of all kinds. We see the dissolution of some of the primary institutions in which we have put our trust. We see political unrest. We see hatred and anger and violence. There are so many different reasons that we look around us and we're disturbed. But I think one of the things that disturbs me more than anything is the breakdown of truthfulness. It's really hard to know what the truth is anymore. In fact, I think this pandemic is a perfect example of, of the struggle that we find ourselves in because, you know, some people say, that, told us, some of the experts, I'll say, told us that millions of people were going to die and that we had to lock ourselves away while other people say, well, no, it's no more than a bad flu. And, and some people say that we have to continue wearing masks and you have to be vaccinated and if you're not, you're putting your your life at risk and the life of everyone else. But then on the other side, there are people who say that masks are ineffective and that all you have to do is be careful in the way that you deal with other people, even as if they had the flu. So who are you supposed to believe? Who are you supposed to believe? Where can you go now to find the truth about anything. Well, well, that's sort of been the subject, hasn't it, of our discussion of John the Baptist, because he was the man who spoke the truth. And because he spoke the truth, because he stood for the truth of God, he found himself standing against the world. 
Now, when I started this little mini-series, I I sort of uh, gave you an example from church history. A man named Athanasius who lived in the 4th century and of whom it was said, Athanasius Contramundum, which meant Athanasius against the world because he took a stand for the truth of Scripture, the truth about Christ, when no one else was. Well, as, as I ponder the situation that we are in and our struggle for the truth and to find out where it is and then to ask ourselves the question, okay, so what can I do or what can any of us do or more particularly, what can New Hope Community Church as a small body of believers do that would have any impact on the craziness that we see around us? And if there is something that we can do, what exactly would that be? Well, when I think about that, I think about another man from history who stood against the world, and I want to use some of his words this morning. His name, as you might imagine, was Martin Luther, and he stood against the world. In fact, the corollary between him and John the Baptist are pretty close. Both of them stood against apostate religion, uh, Judaism and uh, Roman Catholicism in the Middle Ages. Both of them were in an environment where you could easily be killed for your faith. You you could be tortured, at the very least persecuted. And, And when Martin Luther stood against the world at what was called the Diet of Worms, Worms is a town in Germany where his trial took place, he stood against Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor representing the government of the time. He stood against Roman Catholicism because all of the representatives of the Vatican were there. And to a large degree outside, the culture stood against him, although they would soon change that tune. So he stood against the world. Now, it's what he said in that situation that I want to key on this morning because his words have been passed down to us and they're quite famous When he was on that trial and they had his book spread out before him and they were forcing him or trying to force him to recant what he had said and what he had written, this is how he responded. He said, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Now that's the phrase I want to remember this morning. His conscience was captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. Since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Now whether or not those are the actual words he spoke. They fit our, our needs this morning. Because they answer the question. What is it that New Hope Community Church can do to make a difference in the world? Well, Martin Luther, there is a man who literally changed the course of history. So did John the Baptist. So did Jesus. So did others like them. Now, of course, it's not them who are changing the course of history. It is God who is working through them. But what did they all have in common? They all stood for the truth, folks. They all were willing to stand against the world and have the world fight back at them. And they never budged. Now, we want to make a difference. It's not collusion with the world around us. It it, it is not trying to find a way to be relevant. It is not trying to start a conversation about the things that Scripture is clear about. The way we change the world is to stand strong for the truth that is God's truth. And you'll find 
as John the Baptist found, that when you do that, you will stand against the world. And what we will see this morning is that the world will fight back. So let's turn to our text. Let's remind ourselves of where we, we are in this sort of mini-series. We sort of we started out looking at the eschatological, prophetic side of uh, John the Baptist, where his place in redemptive history was to introduce the Christ and to prepare people's hearts for the coming of their Savior. But then we turned a couple of weeks ago and we started to look at John the Baptist himself and not just his words. And we noticed four things from the passage that I just read you. First of all, his humility before Christ. He's not even worthy of unstrapping his sandals. Secondly, the fact that both as a prophet and eschatologically, even though his message was not popular, he stood for the truth, his truthfulness. Well, this morning we're going to look at two other aspects or attributes. We're going to look at his boldness, and then we're going to look at the result of that, which is inevitably his suffering. Now, as we have done on each of those occasions, at the end of the working our way through the text, I have stepped back and I've compared us, compared John the Baptist to modern Christendom. And I'll explain again what modern Christendom means. But we have looked at the church writ large, the visible church around us, and we've compared it to these attributes and found that they're absolutely opposite. Rather than humility, we find arrogance. Rather than truthfulness, we find all kinds of error and false doctrines. Well, this morning, we are going to find instead of, instead of boldness, tolerance, and instead of persecution, teaching of prosperity. Church has completely gone the opposite of what John the Baptist preached. Now, what I'd like to do, I'd like to back up and take a look at the 18th verse just very briefly. I know we covered it the last time. But when I covered it the last time, we had just gotten through talking about all of the harsh, abrasive language that he's using. The people are coming out to him to be baptized and he's saying, you spawn a Satan, you're all going to hell. To paraphrase what he said. But then in the 18th verse, we read, and with many exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And we said, where on earth is the good news? I mean, that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? But then we came to the realization that you can't remove the bad news from the good news and the good news remain good. The good news is good because the bad news is so bad. And the worse the bad news is, the better the good news is. And so they go together. You can't just sugarcoat uh, the gospel and talk about grace and mercy. you got to talk about sin and wrath and God's holiness as well because that's what we're saved from. So the better the, the bad news is, and I'm sorry, the worse the bad news is, the better the good news is. But I want to go back and I want to look at it from a slightly different perspective this morning. I want to key on one particular word. So let me reread that verse for you. So with many other exhortations, he preached, excuse me, he preached good news to the people. It's that word exhortations that I, I want to pull out of that. It's a very common word in Greek, parakaleo is the way, uh, what it means. And, and it means to appeal. It means to urge strongly. It means to entreat. It almost means to plea with someone. And, and in the context that it is being used here, it is to impress a upon someone something. 
And so when these people come out to see John the Baptist, as I said earlier, his language has been very harsh. I mean, just to remind you, some of the things he said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, the point I want to make is this. Those are exhortations. He's trying to impress upon the people their peril. Don't think that because you're sons of Abraham that you're going to waltz your way into heaven. No, you're sinful individuals. You're the spawn of Satan. And unless something happens, unless you have a Savior, you cannot stand before a holy God. You will be thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping of gnashing of teeth and using that fire metaphor. Very strong language. Now, John the Baptist is not just being ill-tempered. He's not just hammering the people because that's what he likes to do as a prophet. He's almost begging them, can't you wake up and see? You're walking towards a cliff. You're going to walk off that cliff into a lake of fire. God is holy. And so therefore, there's a razor's edge between right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil. And God is the one who determines that. You're on the wrong side of that line. And unless you turn to Jesus, I mean, to the Savior, the Messiah who is coming, unless you repent and be baptized with my baptism for forgiveness, unless you prepare your heart for a Savior, then you will be thrown into the outer darkness. You see, he's urging the people. And here's my, one of my points, is that exhortations of this nature are an important, necessary part of the gospel. They're an important part of the good news. I mean, testimonies of the positive things that Jesus has done, those are extremely important, but they, 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 they don't do the whole job. I remember when I was first saved, <clears throat> and I was talking to my biological brother about what had happened to me. And at the time, he had just as severe of a drinking problem as I did. And he wanted to know, how on earth did you quit drinking? And so I began to share my testimony with him that, that Jesus had come into my life and that I was totally changed from the inside out and I had no desire to drink anymore. And as I shared my testimony with him, you could see the smirk begin to show on his face <laughs> and, and, and suppressing a boisterous guffaw is what he was doing because in his, in his eyes and in his, in his heart, he was laughing. He says, oh, how quaint. He didn't say this. This is what his eyes said. Oh, how quaint you found Jesus. You've given up one crutch for another. And, and, and so he was having a good time with it until the conversation turned to exhortation. As soon as I turned it on him, as soon as I asked him whether or not he knew about his mortality and what was going to happen to him when he left this world, and was he prepared to meet his maker, and did he know that his sins would stand against him, and that he knew that he was in the peril that he was in of hellfire, he's not a believer. Well, instantly the mirth was gone, (laughs) the face twisted, turned to anger, and ultimately downright hatred. How dare you question my integrity? How dare you try to save me? You see, and don't get me wrong, 
Testimonies are hugely important. We teach testimonies when we teach evangelism. They're powerful because people like to see that their lives can be changed like your life can be changed. But it's not the complete good news. There also needs to be exhortations. There needs to be a discussion of what you are being saved from. That's the reason I say the bad news is so important because it makes the good news all the better. Well, to go back to the 18th verse and John the Baptist, John the Baptist is exhorting. When the people come out, he's laying it on the line. Now, he's ruffling some pretty important feathers when he does that. We, we read earlier, not in this passage, but that some of those who were coming out were tax collectors and sinners, but also there were soldiers. Now, soldiers are representative of the state and, and the authority placed over them. But the other gospels tell us there were Sadducees and Pharisees and Levites and priests. I mean, these were the high mucky mucks uh, of, uh, of the, the religious world at that time. And John the Baptist was making some enemies in high places through his exhortations. But that does not mean that the boldness with which he speaks is not necessary. Don't think that just because John the Baptist was humble that he was weak. He was anything but as he exhorted the people... And preach the good news. Now, it wasn't just to the people who came out to see him. It wasn't just to those who came out to be baptized. John's exhortations were also directed at those who did not come to be baptized. Uh, The leaders of the day, and in particular, we are told Herod. So let's look in the 19th and the beginning of the 20th verse. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. So we learn back at the beginning of chapter 3 that the Herod now that Luke will talk about from the rest of his gospel and the book of Acts is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great died very shortly after trying to kill Jesus in Bethlehem. And he left his kingdom, divided it into four areas. That's the reason that Herod now is called a tetrarch because he's a fourth ruler of what used to be Herod the Great's kingdom. Now, the Herod is named Antipas, and he is one of the sons of Herod the Great, actually by a Samaritan woman. And since Herod the Great really wasn't a Jew, he was an Edomite, and his mother was a Samaritan, that means that Herod Antipas had absolutely no Jewish blood in him whatsoever, and yet he's the king or the ruler of Galilee and regions on the um, eastern side of the Jordan. Now, even though um, Antipas contested his father's will, didn't like the fact that his older brother Archelaus got all of the choice property down in Judea in that area, he contested it, but he was a political survivor. He was smart enough to realize that when Archelaus, his brother, was such a wicked, such a bad ruler that the Romans deposed him and put a governor in there, which of course one of those would be Pontius Pilate. Well, Antipas was smart enough to realize, hey, listen, I'm not going to buck this. And so he accepted the area that he had been given and he lasted there for 43 years. 
And one of the reasons for that, and we know this, and we learned it back when we were talking about the tax gatherers, and and that was the brilliance of Roman rule was that they allowed petty dictators a certain degree of autonomy, like Herod Antipas, so that they could pursue their lusts and pursue their greed. And as long as they paid tribute to Rome, they didn't interfere Well, that's the kind of leader Herod Antipas was. He was an immoral man. And it is for his immorality that John the Baptist is calling him out, particularly for his immorality with a woman named Herodias. Now, Herodias is quite a character. Um, Herod and Herodias are almost parallels with Ahab and Jezebel in the Old Testament. She was wicked to the core and ultimately led Herod to his ruin and either exile or death, we're not 100% sure. But Herodias was married to Antipas's brother, Philip. And um, Herod was, did I say, yeah, Herodias was married to Philip and Herod was married to a bona fide Princess. She was the daughter of the king of Arabia. But while in Rome, you see, all of the sons of Herod the Great were educated in Rome, where they were exposed to Hellenism, the Greek culture, so permissive and sensual, he just fell into it, loved it. And so there he seduced Herodias, his brother's wife, and then Herodias divorced him, and he sent his wife, the princess, back to Petra, where her father was, who became furious and started a war on his, uh, on his southern flanks, which Antipas lost right off the bat because he wasn't a good leader or a general and would have been completely overrun if it weren't for the Romans stepping in and keeping him in power. And so after all of that rigmarole, Herod and Herodias set up a house and lived a life of opulence and lasciviousness. And so John the Baptist called them out. Um, As if to make matters worse, it wasn't only the fact that he divorced his wife, she divorced her husband, they committed adultery, she was also Herod's niece. So as far as the Jews were concerned, this is a marriage made in hell. Um, And and so John the Baptist began to speak out uh, against that. And that is what got him in trouble. And that is what Luke is talking about here. But it brings up a very interesting um, situation. Oh, by the way, before I I, I go to that, um, that's not all of it. Notice Luke's language when he says that to all of this, he added the, the fact that he locked up um, John the Baptist in prison, which tells us that this is just the tip of the iceberg as far as Antipas is concerned. He, he, he was immoral in so many other ways that Luke's not going to go into. But I want to bring one thing that Jesus said later to his disciples out of the book of Mark. He's uh, uh, explaining how they need to be careful about false doctrines. And this is what he says. He says, he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and 
the leaven of Herod. And that seems to be out of place. It should be the leaven of the Sadducees. But what he is telling his disciples is be careful of the intrusion of the world into the church that I am leaving you to establish because Jezebel will try to sneak her way into the back door. And that is exactly what Herodianism was as far as Judaism was concerned. Let's invite Roman culture into it. Let's put up a little Colosseum ourselves. Let's have Roman baths. Let's, let, let's, let's jump right into a relationship with the Romans. And it is so close to what I have been telling you is represented in modern Christendom because modern Christendom represents a melding of the ethical standards of heaven with the ethical standards of the world and disaster is what follows. Well, that is exactly the kind of a leader that Herod was. Well, anyway... Um, it opens the can of worms for us. A real interesting situation that I only have time this morning to brush up against. Um, we'll probably go into it deeper in the after church. And that's the situation of John the Baptist calling out Herod as the leader or the king that has been placed in authority over him. Now, interestingly, we, we have scripture that tells us how we are supposed to deal with the authority that's placed over us. Romans 13, especially, Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Peter picks up the same idea when he says in his first letter, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors, and that would be Antipas, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In fact, Paul even went so far as to say, if you rebel against the state, you're not rebelling against the state, you're rebelling against God himself. Puts it this way, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So do we have a conflict here? Is there a, a, a conflict between the way John the Baptist is acting, calling old Herod out, and the way Paul and Peter are saying we are supposed to subject ourselves to the governing authority? Well, absolutely not. They're in perfect harmony together, and let me explain why. First of all, what John the Baptist is not doing. John the Baptist is not preaching political activism, folks. He's not preaching rebellion. He's not calling out against the social programs or the lack thereof or welfare programs or lack thereof. He's not talking about the immigration policies, the financial policies, the international um, uh, relations policies. What he is doing is he is comparing the the lifestyle of the leader that God has put in place with the ethical standards of the kingdom. In other words, what he is saying is, Herod, your conscience is not captive to the word of God. And therefore, you are sinning against God. I'm not going to get active in politics. I am not going to lead a rebellion. I'm not going to move to Jerusalem and try to become a member of the Sanhedrin myself. I am going to call you out. And it's called prophetic um, criticism. We'll talk about that in a little bit later. That's what John the Baptist is doing. So that's the simple solution. 
The simple solution here, brothers and sisters, you've heard me say it over and over and over again. Politics has no place in the church. It has no place in the pulpit. Politics divide people. However, morality does have a place in the church. Morality does have a place in the pulpit. And we should call our leaders out and our government out when they engage in egregious sinfulness. When the government of the United States allows for the wholesale murder of 500, 600, 700,000 babies each year, then that is such an egregious confrontation with God's law, they must be called out. The church must stand for the truth of God. And when the government above them or around them stands against the truth of God, the church must be strong enough and brave enough and bold enough to stand up against them no matter what the cost. That's not political, folks. That's not at all in conflict with Romans 13. That is standing for the truth. As we have learned over and over and over again, you stand for the truth, brothers and sisters. You're going to stand against the world. So when it comes time for voting, you know, some of you have asked me, well, who are we going to vote for? Who should we vote for? Tell us which candidate you support. You know, you need to get up there on the pulpit and wave the flag. You'll never hear that from, that, from this pulpit as long as I'm here. And the reason being is I'm going to call out the immorality of our leaders. I'm going to call out those who support abortion, those who support same-sex marriage, those who support what from now on I'm simply going to call gender lunacy. And if you support that, I'm going to, I'm going to speak out against you because I am called to do that, but I'm, not, I'm never going to tell you who to vote for. I'm never going to tell you what party to vote for. I'm going to tell you the principles that you should never, ever vote for someone in office who stands for abortion. I'll tell you that. And you just apply it to whatever or whoever the candidates are. Well, something's going to happen to you when you do that. You're going to suffer. Boldness is going to be responded by the world that fights back. And that's exactly what happens John the Baptist, notice uh, that 20th verse reading the whole thing now. Added, to this them, uh, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And we know that that's just the beginning. We know he's never going to leave prison. We know that he's going to lose his head. So he will die a martyr's death because he was bold enough to stand up for the truth regardless of the circumstances and so the principle here is if you stand for the truth, sooner or later, you're going to be persecuted for it. There is suffering in that. And it, that should be no surprise to Christians, folks. I mean, if you read the Bible, it should be no surprise to you whatsoever. Jesus put it this way. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you. In fact, Jesus tells us as Christians that we should count the cost of being a disciple. We should sit down and we should consider what we're getting into. In shocking language, later on in Luke, this is the way he puts it. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So we are called to to recognize that if we follow Jesus, if we truthfully follow Jesus, then we're going to suffer for it. Because if you stand for the truth, you stand against the world. And if you stand against the world, sooner or later, the world's going to fight back. And that's exactly what it did to John the Baptist. Well, as you know... um, as we have worked our way through this segment, each time we've finished one of these attributes, I've backed up a little bit, and I have compared that attribute to modern Christendom. And I've described it several times, what I mean by modern Christendom. I'm not going to go into the same detail. But I will tell you that it's very close to what we just talked about as far as Herodianism is. Um, uh, the, 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 the Christendom was the Holy Roman Empire. It represented a melding of the state and the church and the culture. Everything got all confused into one sort of conglomeration. And what it meant as far as the religious tone of the time is that it had to be complicit with the culture and with government and with all other things. And so therefore, you just ended up with this sort of mess of the visible church writ large that had melded itself with the ethical standards of the world and not held true to the ethical standards of the kingdom. Now, as we have gone through this, we have noticed that where John the Baptist was humble, especially before Christ, modern Christendom is arrogant. Where John the Baptist was truthful and stood for truthfulness, there are so many heresies and errors in modern Christendom, it's, it's hard to even count them. Well, this morning, as I said at the very beginning, we're going to take a look at two words that also unfortunately typify um, the modern Christendom. Rather than the word um, boldness, the catchword is tolerance. And rather than persecution, it's prosperity. First of all, tolerance. Now, I, I hope you understand something. I, I hope you realize in our discussion of John the Baptist that there's one thing John the Baptist wasn't, was tolerant. When the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests and the Levites come out to him to be baptized and he calls them the spawn of Satan because of their sinful lifestyles, that isn't tolerance, brothers and sisters. And yet the culture has elevated tolerance to be the greatest virtue virtually in its entire ethical standard. But what I want you to see is that tolerance in that sense, tolerance of other gods, tolerance of other ideas and other ideologies, tolerance of different lifestyles and behaviors, that is not a biblical concept. You won't find it in the Bible. There are different tools that we have to interface with the culture, and it isn't tolerance. Scripture is not tolerant. I'm, I'm sorry, it isn't. Jesus was not tolerant. When God told Joshua to go into the land of Canaan, 
Over and over again, he said, I don't want any collusion between you and that culture. I want you to to vote to destruction, every man, woman, child, and even the beast. And if I catch you with any of their gold, there's going to come a curse on the entire camp. God told Gideon to stand for the truth. First of all, he said to him, as far as his father's enthrallment in the, the, the religions of Canaan. He says, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Earlier we read in the moment of the word from 1 John. And John says that, you know something, if, if, if you say you're walking in the light and yet you just go on sinning and collusion with the world, then you lie and the truth is not in you. James puts it pretty clear. I read you this last time. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And, and, and I mentioned this the last time. If what I say right now about modern Christendom offends you, if you feel that I'm not being tolerant enough of other ideas, of other sexual orientations, of other religions, of other um, um, ideologies then that just shows you the degree to which the, 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 the moral standards or the ethical standards of the culture have infiltrated your thinking. Because tolerance in those areas is not the tool of the church. It's not the tool of Christianity. Don't you realize something? That tolerance destroys grace. Don't you, you, you realize that, don't you? That, that the whole reason that God had to be graceful, the whole reason of Christian redemption is all based on our own total depravity, the fact that we cannot save ourselves, the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, the fact of the other sinfulness of our sins. And, and, and if you start saying, well, what the church is really supposed to do is to be tolerant of everybody's lifestyle so we can, here's the buzzword, so that we can start a conversation Because the conversation is more important than standing up for the word of God. As long as we have a conversation, then that's okay. Why do we need a conversation on homosexuality? We don't need a conversation. It is absolutely clear. Why do we need a conversation on abortion? That's murder. And there's no ins and outs about it. We don't need a conversation. You see, grace is destroyed by tolerance. Because... The solution that God has, it is, it's not to be hateful and, and to cast off the sinner. It's to love and cherish and have compassion on the sinner. But to share the only way that that sinner is ever going to stand before a holy God. And it's not through tolerance. It is through the gospel. It is through salvation. It is through repentance and turning to the holy God who alone can forgive those sins. It is turning to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and tolerance simply obliterates the idea of grace. Church has done immeasurable damage to the culture as we'll see in a moment by its tolerance of its sinfulness. Well, another relationship that tolerance enters into is with the state. 
And it goes back to that interesting situation that we have with, well, we're told to live in submission under the authority that God has placed over us, but we have some really egregious sins going on in our culture. And in fact, the, the, I'm sorry, in our government, because the government has begun to reflect almost perfectly the culture, the political correctness of the culture, the tolerance of the culture, where almost everything is tolerated. I don't care what kind of sexual aberration it is. I don't care what kind of political fraud it is. I don't care whether it's violence, whether it's tearing down um, statutes that have no, didn't do anyone any harm. I mean, there are so many things that are tolerated, but the one thing that will never be tolerated is when a Christian like, well, John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet, but when a Christian that resembles John the Baptist stands up and says this far and no farther, that is wrong. And if you stand up before the government and call them to task and say, you are immoral, you are against the law of God, then guess what? You're going to find that the government and the culture will fight back. But it's our calling. I told you earlier what it's called, actually. Theologians call it prophetic criticism. Dr. Sproul, in his commentary, this is pretty much all he talks about because it's one of his subjects. He says that throughout history, the prophets have been engaged in prophetic criticism. Take Moses, for instance. Moses goes to Pharaoh. And he says, Pharaoh, you're, you're immoral. <laughs> you're breaking the laws of God. You're holding God's people as slaves. Let my people go. I mean, he called Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, out through his prophetic criticism. Same thing with Elijah, with uh, Ahab and Jezebel. He called them out for their egregious immorality. Even David. You remember the story with Nathan and David when Nathan told that parable about the man only had one lamb? And, and then David was the man that he's talking about because he had stolen the wife of Uriah and then murdered him? I mean, even Nathan called David out. So we have a responsibility, and, and don't take this wrong, please. I'm not a prophet. But the closest thing that we get to the prophets in post-apostolic age are those who exposit the word of God, preachers who stand in the pulpit and bring you the word of God authoritatively. It's about as close as you get to being a prophet today. And so therefore, it is the responsibility of every preacher in this country to stand in their pulpits, get out of politics, get out of whatever local or national political scheme they've got and begin to call out the leaders of this country as immoral um, sinners. And that they are transgressing the law of God. You don't have to look very far, brothers and sisters, to find it. I know that some of you got upset uh, in the last administration when I pointed out that President Trump, whether you liked it or not, is an egregious sinner. He boasted of his adultery. That's a sinful individual and that is a sinful man. And he should be called out for it. By the same token, Joe Biden should be called out because he supports abortion, because he supports same-sex marriage, because he supports gender lunacy. Same with Kamala Harris. You should call them out, not politically. I will not talk about their, their, uh, their, their, their immigration uh, uh, policies or, or their social problem, uh, uh, policies or anything else, but I will call them out for breaking the law of God. And that is the responsibility of the church to stand for the truth. But if you stand for the truth, you're going to 
stand against the culture. Brothers and sisters, let the church be the church. Let's, every time the church has tried to get involved with politics, every time the church has tried to manipulate the governments, it has been disastrous. Whether it was John Calvin or Zwingli or Knox, it doesn't matter. Any attempt to make government and church the same has failed miserably. We need to call the state to be the state. The state's obligation, and I'll talk about this more in the, in the after church, the state has a purpose. God has put the state and given them the sword for a reason, and that is to protect the life of its citizens. In a free uh, governance, it's also to protect the liberty and the property of its citizens. But when a government supports and promotes the wholesale murder of 500, 600, 700,000 babies a year, that government has lost its reason for being. It's lost its compass and should and must be called out by the church. This is the way Dr. Sproul put it in his. What is the church doing about all these things? This isn't China or Russia, he writes. This isn't the Third Reich. This is the United States of America that kills and sanctions the killing of more than half a million babies every year. Where's the church? Intimidated. Terrified. Cringing. Sticking its head in the sand. Oh, talking about these things in hushed voices, isn't it terrible? But not standing up because they know if they, get stand, if they stand up that somebody's going to come along and try to knock them down. So therefore, what we need, brothers and sisters, are men and women who are willing to be the, Johns of the John the Baptists of this world at this time who will stand for the truth, knowing that they will stand against the world and knowing that the world will try to knock them down. One last thought on tolerance, and that is tolerance within the church. One of the greatest travesties that has happened is that the church has adopted tolerance as one of its primary virtues. You know, look, listen to that hellfire and brimstone preacher up there, ranting and raving about what we should do as far as the culture and the government is concerned. Doesn't he know, judge not lest he also be judged? Doesn't he realize that? Doesn't he realize that we're supposed to be loving and kind and Jesus was loving and kind and we're to be tolerant of all people? That is not a biblical principle. That is right out of the culture. And because it's out of the culture, it's right out of the pit of hell and smells like smoke. What you don't understand, brothers and sisters, is this. What you don't understand is that by being tolerant, The church is doing an immeasurable disfavor to the culture. Uh, Not not only ruining the church, but ruining the culture. Don't you understand that we are to be the lights of the world? Don't you understand that when Jesus says you're the city on the hill, that that means we are a beacon of the light of, 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 of of the standards of heaven so that the world could know? Don't you realize that we are called to be the lights of the world? That we are the salt of the earth. And Jesus said if that salt becomes worthless, it is no longer salty. It is no longer doing what it was set aside to do. Then it is worthless. Throw it out in the street and trample it under feet. 
Because it is of no value anymore. The church's responsibility, folks, we are the lighthouse that stands riveted to the rocky shore, casting our light out into the darkness so that the ships in the storm can find safe harbor. We turn the light off, we muddy it, or we decide that it's, that it's offensive to some, then we're of no value whatsoever. You know what it's like? It's kind of like two people and a well and a rope. You got one person that's fallen into a well far down. You got the other person up on top, right outside the well, with a long rope able to throw down into the well. Now, the culture is in the pit. The church is supposed to be up there with the rope because we're supposed to be the ones who are able to pull the culture out. And what have we done? Rope and all, we've jumped into the pit so we can communicate better and start a conversation with the culture. Now you've got two people in a pit and a rope and no way out. That's not what the church was designed to do. The church is designed to be the light that leads people out of the darkness. When are we going to start realizing that? When are we going to start standing for the truth, standing for the ethical standards of Scripture, standing for the inerrancy of Scripture, standing for the gospel? Standing against the world. That's what we are called to do. Politics is the tool of the culture. The gospel is the weapon of the church. Don't get me riled up. One last thought. The last attribute, and I'll make this one short, is the suffering that John the Baptist inevitably went through. Suffering is a part of standing firm for um, the, the, the standards of God. But unfortunately, in modern Christendom, the word persecution has been replaced with the word prosperity. Come to Jesus and everything will be okay. Come to Jesus and health and wealth will be yours. Come to Jesus because there is an abundant life with him and all of your needs will be answered and all of the, the, the shortcomings of your life will be taken care of. Prosperity theology. Name it, claim it. Just claim, name what you need and Jesus is going to provide it for you. And, and, and here's the insidious nature of that false teaching. And if he doesn't, it's your fault. If, if he doesn't, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you are suffering, it's because either you don't have the faith that is necessary to believe that Jesus will provide everything that you want, or Satan has a stronghold in your life, and you just got to find that stronghold and eliminate it, and then you can be happy. That's Phariseeism. That's not Christianity. So I guess John the Baptist didn't get the memo, right? Because he suffered. I guess Abraham, Moses, Noah, David, all the mediators of the covenants, I guess they didn't quite understand it because they suffered. They must not have had enough faith. And, 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 and Job's friends must have been right. Because it was Job's friends who were telling Job, you know, Job, you've got a stronghold for Satan in your life somewhere. All you've got to do is find it, repent of it, and then everything will be okay. That's not what I heard from the whirlwind. Was it what you heard? In fact, I, I, I heard those friends um, uh, uh, chastised by God for being rotten counselors. I, I, I guess all of the 
martyrs and the prophets. In, in fact, I, I guess the writer of Hebrews just got it wrong. I guess he just didn't realize that when he wrote the Hall of Faith, he was actually talking about the Hall of Unfaith. Because this is what he wrote. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I, I, I guess they just didn't have enough faith. I guess John the Baptist didn't have enough faith. I guess all those martyrs burned at the stake and fed to wild animals who stood firm. I guess they just didn't have enough faith. I guess Jesus, who suffered more than any human being who ever walked the face of this earth, I guess he just didn't have enough faith. What a heresy, what arrogance to state that if you simply believe strong enough, you can get whatever you want out of God. Rather than persecution, rather than suffering, rather than counting the cost of what it means to be a disciple, try to manipulate God in some way so he gives you what you want. Well, I want to leave you with an unpleasant prediction, but then a challenge. Unless the Lord gives us a revival, which is what we pray for, and I pray regularly for revival, and you should be too, that God will remove his hand, I mean not remove, but restore his hand of blessing to this country and lead us into a a great awakening of epic proportions. But short of that happening, I will predict the complete downfall of modern Christianity. I think that, and I think in my lifetime, and in many of yours, you will see people leaving modern Christianity or modern Christendom in droves. And I think that you will see the media dancing on the grave of the church, as they will call it. Because when persecution becomes real, when Real persecution occurs. I mean, we're persecuted now, but we still have a constitution. We still have a court system. We're still able to stand upon rights that were given to us. There's a concentrated effort to take those rights away. And it is not far-fetched to, to, to know that I might be thrown in jail for what I am saying today because it can be considered to be hate speech. And you could lose your job and be thrown into financial destitution because you stood for your faith, because you believe as scripture believes and you were bold enough courageous enough to stand up for it I think that when the persecution becomes real and people are thrown in jail and actually can lose their lives because of their belief in Jesus Christ that you are going to see people live leave modern Christendom in droves but here's the challenge that doesn't mean you You see, that's not you. That's modern Christendom, folks. Because the true church of Jesus Christ will not lose one single person. It will continue to grow according to the plans of God. And the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
We will always have a church of Jesus Christ until our Lord comes home again. It will thrive, it will grow, it will prosper, and it will continue to share the gospel. They can take this building away and we'll meet under a tree. They can take the tree away and we will meet in homes. They can take our Bibles away and we will find a way to hide them because we will never, ever be stopped or oppressed to the point that we change or back away from the truth. Now, how do you answer the question I asked you in the beginning? How can one small church have an impact on the culture around us? By standing for the truth. I leave you with Ephesians 6. I know I've said that several times today. This time I mean it. I leave you with Ephesians 6. Because you're going to need it. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Stand for the truth of God. You will stand against the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teaching of Scripture, the encouragement We thank you for the exhortations of John the Baptist because we hear them even today. We know that he reflected your ministry when you were here. He reflected your teaching. And Lord, we need this. We we, we need Christians who will stand for the truth and not waver. We need churches that aren't like the dominoes that are falling one after the other, falling all over themselves to, to be compliant with a culture. We need to stand for your truth because it is the only truth as we learned the last time. Lord, I pray that you would give us that grace that we would stand for the truth and thereby stand against the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.